Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can know you. We thank you that you didn't just create the world and remain distant from it. But Lord, you desire to be in relationship with your creation. And even when the people you created didn't give you the honour and thanks that you deserve when they decided they would think and do things for themselves and not listen to you. We thank you that it was always in your heart to provide a way by which we can be saved. And we thank you for the privilege we have uh, to look at the Saviour, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, very God, also very man, who came on our part to, to reconcile us to God. And we pray as we look further at uh, what Mark has to say about him this morning, uh, that we might see something more of the wonder of Jesus Christ and the beauty of what he has done for all of us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You are about to hear the best sermon you've ever heard from the most attractive man you have ever seen. Now, I don't mind that you've all got a grin on your face because you know I've just said something totally false. Like, you just take a look at this guy and say, nah, that second one, not a chance. Even my wife probably agrees with that. But even the first one, unless this is the first sermon you've ever heard, you're probably not too convinced of that one either. And I was kind of embarrassed about knowing that was going to be my opening line, knowing that we had a number of visitors here this morning. But why did I say it? Not because I believe it's true, and I don't, so please keep that on the record. Don't take a sample of the first line of the sermon and say, this is how Steve preaches. My point is that anybody can make big claims either about themselves or about somebody else. Those claims are only valid, though, if the evidence actually points in that direction. Last week we began our 31-part series in the Gospel of Mark, a biography that was written within 30 years of Jesus' death and resurrection which is important because it means that it was written during a time when eyewitnesses who would have seen the events that Mark recorded could have said, hang on, I was there. That's not the way it happened. Yet there are no writings of that period, even how, regardless of how widely spread Mark and other gospel writers were, there's no one saying, I was there, that's not how it went down. That's not what happened. And one of the things we looked at last week is that the historical accounts about Jesus Christ, both found in the Bible and just ordinary historical materials, by the measure which people determine reliable manuscripts, we have the most reliable sources of any human being has ever walked this earth of Jesus Christ. And when Mark introduced this Jesus he made some big claims that we looked at last week in verses 1 to 20. He introduced him as the Saviour. That's what the name Jesus means. The Christ or the Messiah, the anointed King, the Son of God, the one who is God, the one who is the new and perfect Adam, the one who is the new and perfect Israel the one who stands alongside and on behalf of sinful mankind and who eventually who would die and bear the weight of their sins on the cross. They're massive claims. 
You don't see me going around saying I'm the son of God or that I'm God, I'm the saviour of the world and for good reason. But as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, do we see in the things described about him and the things that he did, do those claims actually bear any weight? Certainly one thing you'll notice in the reading that we had beforehand, those who were eyewitnesses to Jesus recognise that he was unlike anyone they've ever seen before. He had an authority unlike anything they'd ever seen. And he just demonstrated his power and authority, and this is how we're going to work our way through it. In his words and actions in verses 21 to 33, in his priorities in 34 to 39, and he exercised that power with humility in verses 40 to 45. So firstly, power in his words and actions. The first location that we see Jesus in our passage is in Capernaum. It was a town just on the, on the northern beaches, so to speak, of the Sea of Galilee. It was kind of like on the borders between two Roman provinces. So it's kind of a little bit distant from the, the Roman rule to some degree and an extent. But it was also an area in which Jew and Gentile relationships weren't quite as hostile as they were in other parts. For example, when you read Luke chapter 7, it speaks about a Roman centurion who had a servant who was sick and who sought Jesus to heal him. And the local Jews spoke highly of this Roman. They said, he's a good man, he loves us. In fact, he even built our synagogue. Presumably he funded for it to be built. And we finished the first part of chapter 1 with Jesus calling the disciples. It says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And his call for them to follow him is where we come into here where we see they went. As in Jesus and those who called the follow followed him and the place where they followed him too was to the synagogue in Capernaum, the very same one that the Roman centurion had, had built for them. Now, what's a synagogue? Is it just like a, a mini temple? It's very different than the temple itself. It was kind of like a, a localised small gathering. There wasn't the, the same sort of rituals and things that you had to be done at the temple there in Jerusalem. The requirements of forming a synagogue were 10 male adults, which was, by their reckoning, was 13 years and above. They would have a synagogue ruler whose job was to look after the building, the operations, look after the library, like any manuscripts or anything written material that they had. If it was a large town, they'd look after maybe schooling and education. But they weren't the one who was responsible for teaching the word of God. In the, in the environment of a synagogue, anyone who was qualified to speak on the word of God was given opportunity to speak. And on this occasion, Jesus was the one who took the opportunity to speak. Now that may also explain a little bit why when you read over to, to Acts, when you see the apostles beginning their ministry as they enter a town into the synagogue, both as an expression of Paul's idea of the gospel going first to the Jew and the Gentile, because it was a place where people who believed in the God of the Old Testament would gather together and 
reliable men were given permission to teach from the Old Testament law, from the Torah, as Paul and the other apostles did. Now, the people in Capernaum, they would have heard lots of people teach from the Old Testament law. They would have heard some of the scribes come and teach from the Old Testament law. The scribes were not just people who copied things, they were those who, in some translations, are described as the experts in the Old Testament law. And even though they'd heard voices like those teaching on the scriptures, we read in verse 22, they are utterly amazed at Jesus' teaching. They're like, regardless of what we've heard before, even from the experts in the law, he teaches with an authority unlike any that we have ever heard or seen before. Now we see scribes a number of times in the Gospel of Mark and the majority of times they're opposing Jesus. In fact, there's only one positive description of a scribe in Mark's Gospel in chapter 12 to which Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom. But while Jesus is there teaching in the synagogue, there is also a man with an unclean spirit or an evil spirit or a demon. Now, I don't think that would have been particularly unique to that morning. I'm sure it's happened lots of times that there was someone there who had an unclean spirit. But what is unique about this situation is that this unclean spirit is in this person, but also is the very presence of the Son of God is in the synagogue. And that rattles the spirit. Like he recognises Jesus, he responds to Jesus saying, what have, have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now as Jesus' presence is there in the synagogue, that evil spirit recognises Jesus, recognises his authority, describes him with perfect clarity, probably better than any of the Jewish leaders do in the, in the gospel accounts. And he recognises, this is the one who will destroy us. He is the one who will judge us. It's probably fair to say they both recognise each other. I mean, after all, Jesus is the creator of all things. Apart from him, there is nothing exists other than what he created. And all of the, of the what we call evil angels, evil spirits, were once part of those who were there, gathered around the throne... And this was one amongst, along with Satan, who was cast down for the rebellion. They recognise each other. And Jesus says to him, be quiet, come out. There's no fancy ritual. Jesus doesn't say to the guy, okay, you need to repent of this sin, this sin, you need to burn this thing, you need to burn this thing, you need to cast out this demon by this name. He says, be quiet, get out. That's all there is. There was no ritual and the spirit had no choice but to submit and to leave. Now the people, they were already amazed at Jesus because of his teaching. Now this is a whole new level. They go, who is this guy? Even the evil spirits submit to him. Now, there are a number of encounters that Jesus has with unclean or evil spirits in the Gospel of Mark. The majority of them occur within the first half of the Gospel. And I think it's an important 
laying that groundwork because this says something about Jesus and his ministry and what he came to do. Last week we saw in chapter verse 15, Jesus says, repent. The time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. This kingdom which Jesus speaks of is the one which Paul speaks of in Colossians. Jesus has come to deliver them out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus didn't come only to rescue us from sin, but from our slavery to to Satan and his minions. As Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 2, on the cross, he defeated them, put them to open shame, triumphing over them on the cross. And the people Jesus calls to follow him are all people, according to Paul in Ephesians 2, 2, who formerly were following the prince of the power of the air of Satan. So it's important, very early on, Jesus shows his uncompromised authority over the powers of evil. But it's interesting. Jesus commands them to be quiet. It's not just the evil spirits that Jesus often says this to. He says it to people that he heals. Be quiet. Don't tell anybody about this. I thought we were in the business of telling everyone about Jesus. Why would you say, shh, don't tell anybody? But I'll give you three reasons, and they're probably more than this. The first is this. If you're going to have someone on marketing or public relations announcing and talking about you, demons are probably not the best person for that role. It probably doesn't do that great for your reputation. Even though regularly we see evil spirits saying true articulations about who Jesus is, they're probably not the best person that you want to be the announcing of who you are. Secondly, we know that first century Jews had an expectation of a Messiah and a kingdom that was very different than the way Jesus introduced it. And so we didn't want to get people to get all riled up around these false expectations. And thirdly, Jesus is very plain and clear. His primary reason for coming wasn't the miracles. It wasn't to impress people with the miracles. But because of what happened, we read in verse 28, Jesus' fame spread throughout the entirety of the region. We'd never seen anything like this. Not only did he teach, he cast out evil spirits. They go and tell everybody. Now we know through various accounts in the Gospels, the religious leaders get really upset when Jesus does things on the Sabbath. Even if it's something good like delivering someone of an evil spirit. But Jesus had done this on the Sabbath and he's not finished. On that same Sabbath day, Jesus goes to Simon Peter's house where his mother-in-law is unwell with a fever. Doesn't give us any more details other than it being a fever. I don't think we need to send her off for a COVID test. But they tell Jesus immediately because they recognise this is the guy who can do something about it. Without hesitation, Jesus takes her by the hand, lifts her up, and immediately she is healed. 
It's not a case of Jesus takes her by the hand and then she starts to feel a little better and he says, okay, you have a Panadol and a bit of lie down and when you wake up you feel great. Immediately she is healed and immediately she begins serving Jesus. Because being a follower of Jesus, that's one of the defining marks. You follow, you serve. To be a disciple, which literally means to be a learner, means to learn Christ to become like Christ. And as Jesus spoke of his ministry in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to lay down my life as a ransom for many. So it's a big day, big Sabbath day in Capernaum, this impressive teaching, casting out an evil spirit, the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Now remember, the Sabbath The way they reconciled days in in those times was Friday from sundown through to Saturday of sundown. Which why it makes sense, the very next event, it says, now when the sun went down, the entire city is outside the door of Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Because one of the restrictions of the Sabbath was how far you could travel and all those things. So now the sun's come down, they've all heard about him, they want to come and see him for themselves. Now, if I was Jesus, I'd be thinking, man, my day's done. I've had a good day of ministry. Now the whole town's outside the door. Can I have a rest? But graciously, it appears every single one who was there, who was sick or had an unclean spirit, Jesus healed. When it says he healed many, it doesn't mean that he had a pretty good high percentage rate. He had a 100% set percent success rate and there were many of them and again he asked them the demons they cast out not to speak now if you're in Capernaum whether you're in the synagogue or not without doubt you'd say there is something profoundly different about this Jesus they've never seen anyone teach or act with such authority Jesus has got their amazement He's got the crowds following. He's got their respect and their honour. You think, man, Capernaum is the place to set up a mega church. But Jesus does not stay. Jesus has priorities that are far beyond numbers and impressing people. We see some of his priorities in verses 34 to 39. In fact, early the next morning, even though there's crowds looking for him, He withdraws away from the crowds to spend time in prayer in a desolate place. Now, I'm sure Jesus prayed on a regular basis. There are three particular times recorded in the Gospel of Mark. One of them's here. One of them's in between the feeding of the 5,000 when he walks on water. And the other is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I think you get the impression that Jesus is in regular conversation with the Father in prayer. But when you read something like that, for you and I, we're not the perfect son of God. If he needed prayer, if he came before God in prayer, how much more do I need to? If the sinless son of God needed to pray, how much do I, who struggle with sin on a daily basis, need to? We call him Lord. We say that we need to depend upon him for absolutely everything. Our needs are big, 
our needs are constant, but if we were to reflect honestly, we'd probably say our prayer is little and inconsistent. I want this to encourage us to call upon God. God, make me, make us people of prayer who depend upon you for all things. We bring everything before you with thanksgiving because we recognise apart from you, we can do nothing. He withdrew to a desolate place, no distractions, even though the crowds wanted him to focus. What a stark contrast to the way in which Jesus criticised some of his Jewish peers in Matthew's Gospel. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees you in secret will reward you. Now, he's not saying the only place you pray is out of sight. He's saying there's something special about having intentional, extended periods of time without distraction just to seek him and seek him alone. I mean, realistically, on a practical level, we should pray everywhere. Not just to be seen, but we pray everywhere because we need God everywhere. Because we're seeking him, not because we're seeking the attention of others. Jesus called upon the Father in prayer. We need to even more desperately than he. Now Jesus' disciples, as we said, the word means learners. They're still learning. And as they discover that Jesus is not around, they panic. We're like, Jesus, where have you gone? There's all these people and there's more people to be healed. What are you doing? They didn't just go out searching for him, as the ESV said. The word has got a far greater intensity. They hunted him down. They pursued him. Why? Because everyone, they say, was looking for him. The word's gone around to all the surrounding regions. Here's a guy who teaches with authority, who does miracles, and everyone wants to see him. They go, come on back, they need you. So with an eager crowd, what was Jesus' priority? Did he think, wow, I'm going to get some big numbers here this morning back in Capernaum? He said, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also because that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus had a guaranteed crowd of enthusiastic people. And he says, that's not my priority. I'm not here to put on a show, not on here to build numbers to make people feel excited and amazed. He says, let's go somewhere else. I've come here to preach, to proclaim. Sure, it does say he cast out demons also, but it seems kind of secondary. He went there to preach and there were people who needed to have demons cast out, so he did that while he was there. Jesus had a message to proclaim and a salvation to effect and nothing was going to distract him from that. You and I have a message to proclaim, the gospel. 
the power of God for salvation. Brothers and sisters, do not get distracted. Do not get distracted with entertaining a crowd. Jesus was a man of prayer and proclamation. And if we follow in his footsteps, we should be too. His priorities, except the fact that it's not our job to affect salvation, that's his, are our priorities. This Jesus had an authority like they'd never seen before. But often when you see people with power and authority, they come across as arrogant and they think pretty highly of themselves. But Jesus was a man with power, with humility. So we've moved from scenes where there are crowds seeking after Jesus to now focusing in on one individual who is seeking after Jesus. One man, a leper. Now the term translated as leper has a much broader scope than what we would call leprosy today. It meant all sorts of different skin conditions. I've got one that would actually put me underneath that category. But it carried a major significant stigma for people in that culture. Like it was a big issue. Leviticus has got two whole chapters and they're long chapters dealing with the issue of leprosy and being clean and the effects, what you need to do if you've got it. And I'd encourage you to read Leviticus 13 and 14 later on to get the full weight and gravity of what's going on here as Jesus interacts with this guy. But in a nutshell, if you had leprosy or anything that came under that banner, you were excluded. You were excluded from your own family. You couldn't come into contact with them. You were excluded from the community. You were excluded from the community of worshippers. You were an outsider. You didn't approach anyone. You didn't touch anyone. Nobody wanted to be anywhere near you. You were encouraged to wear clothes that made it blatantly obvious, do not come near me, I am unclean. You rang a bell and you shouted, unclean, because you didn't want to go near anyone and make them unclean. They didn't want to go near you because of their fear of the same thing happening to them. They were an outsider. They were excluded. Nobody would come within reach of them at all. He would not go near anyone. Yet in a combination of both desperation and faith, he approached Jesus. The one who saw and understood himself to be profoundly impure, profoundly unclean, approaches the purest and cleanest person who has ever walked the face of this earth. And he makes a request that is both simple, profound and full of faith. He comes to Jesus, imploring him, kneeling and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Like he says, two really big statements there. He says, you can. I know without doubt, you 100% can heal me, can make me clean without a doubt. But the second thing he says, if you will. He realises maybe it's not God's will I'll put it in his hands. It's not in my hands. I'm not going to say you must. If it's your will, I know you can. You can heal me. I reckon this leper could, could teach a thing or two to a broad range of Christians. To some in more conservative circles, he could teach them, 
guess what? Jesus can heal. Some in some particular Pentecostal circles, they're kind of like the name it and claim it. You need to hear him say, it doesn't depend upon your will, it depends upon the will of God. You don't decide what's God's will or when God will or won't heal. That's not your role. But to come back to Jesus and this leper, how does Jesus respond to this one that nobody would go anywhere near? Jesus reaches out and touches him. He didn't say, mate, you've got to sort out your leprosy before I'm coming anywhere near you. Jesus came to him while he was unclean and dealt with his most immediate need and he healed him. He advised him to go show himself to the priest, which was required by the law. They were the ones who would declare you to be clean. But in that process, he didn't just heal him of a physical disease. That meant he'd be restored into family, to community, to the worshipping community. He was no longer an outsider to be excluded. He was declared clean. And once again, Jesus says, Tell nobody. Imagine being that guy. You haven't been able to come near anyone. You haven't been able to hug your kids, hug your family. Everyone stays away from you. Jesus heals you. You're going to go show yourself to a priest. You get all that back. And he says, don't tell anybody. Again, we've looked at some of the reasons why. But he can't help himself. He can't help but speak of what Jesus has done, what he has seen, what he's experienced. And I would say anyone who genuinely encounters Jesus is the same. You can't help but speak. However, it wasn't overly helpful for him to speak. Jesus had just freed this man of a condition that provided so many obstacles to his life. But now, as this man has gone and told everyone's subject... Contrary to Jesus' request, he's now created obstacles for Jesus, who didn't want a crown. When he went and talked freely about it, spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Sure, it changed things about the nature of Jesus' ministry, but as we said last week, nothing Nothing can hinder his ministry from going forward. This Jesus, who they've seen heal, cast out demons, teach you with an authority like they've never heard or seen before. Is he just a claim? Are these things which Mark has said about this Jesus, do they ring true of his character and his actions? Now, I'm sure immediately you wrote off my claim at the beginning to be the most attractive man you've ever seen, and I'm not offended by that at all. And now that we've got to the end of the sermon, you've probably written off the, the other one as well. Why? Because anybody can make big claims. You need evidence to back up these claims. So if last week Jesus is presented as the Saviour, the Messiah, the anointed king, the son of God, God himself. As we finished off the first chapter of Mark, 
Is the evidence pointing to affirm those facts or write them off? He's certainly been confirmed as having an authority like no other. You can rule out this idea that Jesus is just another good moral teacher. The people who saw him who were eyewitnesses, he has an authority more than any teacher we've ever heard. He cast out demons in huge numbers. Healed people from various sickness in huge numbers. And he's not just another guy seeking numbers and seeking attention, being a showboat. In fact, when the crowds wanted him, he withdrew and said, I must preach. That's what I came to do. He had that mix of power and humility. He approached someone that nobody else would approach. Genuinely cared for him and his needs in the position where he was at. But you could say, saviour. That's a, that's a pretty big claim. Saviour of the world. Sure, we're only in the first chapter of 16 or the second sermon of 31 sermons. But even in that first chapter, there are many significant foreshadows of things which are to come. He's demonstrated his authority over evil powers who knew that he would be the one who would eventually destroy them which points us to Jesus on the cross where he disarmed them, where he put them to open shame by his death, achieving victory over them, that set in motion which will come to full culmination at his return. He healed or or cleansed a leper, a condition that led to people being excluded from the community of God's people. It's a picture that the Bible uses regularly, this idea of leprosy as being a symbol for sin. Jesus Christ came towards an unclean, a sinful people. He cleansed us of our sins. He dealt with our sin to restore us to God and to restore us to one another. As Jesus dealt with the leper, he touched that one who was unclean without becoming unclean himself. As Jesus was on the cross when he bore our sin without being defiled by our sin. And as he bore our sin and dealt with it and dealt with the powers and authorities, putting them to open shame, he not only dealt with our sin, he restored us to God and called us his children. I love this Jesus. Many people in this room love this Jesus and they have found that he is everything the Bible says about him to be true and it's my prayer for every single one of us as we journey through this gospel of Mark that we'll see that everything that is said about him is true is wonderful and is good and I would encourage you if you have any questions along the way feel free to ask me or anyone else here that you know who does know Jesus because this is an issue far too important to ignore let's close in prayer Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We were without hope in this world because of our sin that alienated us from you. There was nothing that was within our power that could have reconciled us to you. But we thank you that while we were still helpless, Christ 
the Son of God, the very God himself, died on behalf of sinners to bring us to God. We can't thank you enough for what you have done to reconcile us. We cannot thank you enough for all the blessings that we have as a result of our union with Christ. And Lord, we recognise too, as we call ourselves followers of Christ, may we have the priorities of Christ that we might be a preaching and a prayerful proclaiming people of the wonderful good news that this Jesus is everything he's claimed to be. The Saviour, the King, the Son of God, God himself, who identified with and came alongside and represented sinful mankind as he bore their, their punishment of death on the cross and rose victorious on the third day and is now seated at the right hand of the Father and who will one day return to bring all things to completion. Lord, we thank you for him. We need him in all things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.